Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Anthony Tomasini, chief music critic for the New York Times and author of several books, most recently, The Indispensable Composers, A Personal Guide. How's it going today? Uh, fine. I'm very happy to talk with you. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I, uh, I'm in the middle of the book right now and really enjoying it thus far. Well, thank you. I, I worked very hard to direct the book to general readers. The hardest thing of my job, it's the hardest part. Every day it never gets easier, and it's always a challenge, and was a challenge in writing this book, is to write about music without getting te- too technical. You know, to describe sound in words is very, very hard. But I tried. I know. So I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I know that's something that you've written about before. There's one essay from 2017, uh, Conveying Sounds Through Words, the Classical Music Critics Challenge. Right. Um, yeah. How did you kind of come to that idea of, like, trying to make accessibility a focus of yours without, like, dumbing down the music itself? Uh, that's a big question, and there, there are two two elements to answering it. One is from the perspective of writing. Maybe what we love about music, one of the things we love is that it's one of the things that you can't describe with words, you can't put into words. And we sort of, it invites us to put words out of our mind in in a way. And there is a very specific language that describes music, but it's technical. And even people who love music and listen to music and go to concerts who are not trained in music just don't know what these terms like chromatic harmony or something like that uh, mean. So you really can't use use that. And uh, I've always I've envy sports writers tremendously because they can assume so much knowledge on the part of readers. The typical crowd at Yankee Stadium uh, knows a whole lot more about the insider workings of baseball than the typical audience at the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. Even though the people at the Philharmonic may love music. So there are two things. One is trying to find the right language, kind of colloquial, everyday language that can describe sound. But the other thing is that if people don't know the insider elements of music, they have powerful reactions to music, and their ear is working, even when they don't know what they're hearing or what it would be called. So you have to write to that instinct, you know, that I once had a friend who loves music and goes to concerts all the time, asked me, he came over, can you tell me again what the difference between major and minor is? <laughs> and I sat down at my piano and I explained, but I kept saying to him, you have to understand your ear knows the difference. You do know. It's just, you think you don't, you know, like you don't understand the lingo and stuff. But, and so it's, if my writing is working well, it's like an epiphany. It's like somebody reads it and says, ah, yes, that's what I've been hearing. I've been hearing that all along. Now I know what it is I've been hearing. That's the challenge. That's what I've tried to do. I think that's so important because there's, it's such this, this huge thing. It feels like a monolith and it's really hard to take it apart for most people that haven't spent years either playing music or are listening to it and, and learning about it. So I think that's a really interesting thing that you do and that you try to do. Yes. And yet it's maybe the most instinctive art. It just pulls us right in. And even like in college, uh, you'll meet singers, like especially musical theater aspiring singers often come into a program and they sing beautifully and they sing musically, but they don't read music. And yet, and the challenge in teaching them, because when I was taught in college, I had students like that, is to say, look, the hard thing in music, you already do. No, nobody can teach you to sing musically. You do that. Anybody can learn to read music. You know, yeah. that's not hard. But it is a challenge. It's not easy. 
I envy film critics. I envy theater critics. <laughs> I think all of those jobs are a little easier, just in terms of writing. But I do love writing about music, and I try my hardest. I can see. Um, well, great. Well, to kind of dive into the origins of the book, I know it started out uh, from a series you did for The Times in 2011. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that series and about your decision to make it into a full-length book. Yeah, um, I just had this idea. It was just an intellectual game. I, in 2011, I decided to do a whole series. I called it my Top Ten Composers Project. Over two weeks, it was a series of articles. I made five videos where the video crew came over, and I sat at my piano and played things and explained music, just like Uncle Lenny. And uh, the and then there were, we had comments galore posted on, from readers, I think 2,000 of them. And it was all a big intellectual game to say, if you were going to pick the top ten composers in history in order, who would they be? How would you go about it? I felt there was a ser- the only way to play any game is seriously. So I played it seriously. But the whole game was a process to get at, well, what is the big deal about Verdi, about Mozart? You know, like, if you had to be precise about Bartok or something, how would you make a case for them? It was all a sort of way of getting at it. So it was fun. And two publishers called me at the time and said, turn it into a book. And I said, no, no, no. As an intellectual game, that's one thing. But a book, no, no. But I thought about it and thought about it. And I finally got, after a year or so, a year and a half, I I found the people at Penguin who said, look, I, the thing about your series is that people had fun with it, people argued over it, but I, a lot of readers wrote in to say that they thought I, they felt a little frustrated because they thought I had more to say, you know, because you could only do so much in a, a series. Yeah. So I thought, let me really open it up. I'll drop the game. That doesn't have to be a part of it. <laughs> um, and just open it up and write about all these towering figures. But then it introduced another challenge for me because... It made it feel like the book was going to be suspiciously close to something that could be called The Great Composers, <laughs> which was a book I didn't want to write particularly. But in a way, that's what I've written. But I've tried to do it. So my answer was to do it in an unconventional way, to make it as personal as possible. So the essays, the chapters on various composers are, are history in them and have criticism in them, in them from my years of doing that, but lots of personal experiences, not just performer, concerts I heard and artists I heard when I was young, but concerts I gave when I was a kid and teachers I had and people I've interviewed as a critic and any li- places I visited, you know, the house where Handel lived in London, or going to Grieg's hometown in Bergen, Norway, anything that gave me personal insight into, to help me understand why these towering figures are so towering. So that, that's how it came about, and that's how I think I prevented from feeling like some generic book on great composers. That's why the subtitle is crucial, A Personal Guide. Yeah, and the uh, the other issue is this greatness thing, which I I take on in the first chapter. I begin by sort of taking apart the idea of greatness. Oh, we're all too obsessed with it, you know. Like, what does it matter? It just gets in the way of composers from earlier eras who maybe were not that towering, but are very worthy and interesting. And also, it clouds our perception of music today. If we're going to hold up every new piece to the great works of the past and stuff, so I sort of 
t- say all the bad things about it. But then halfway through, I turn around completely and I say, but we can't help it. Yeah. These people, they are great. It's like they guide us through our lives. And you want to know why. Why does Mozart affect me so much? Why? You know, so I embrace greatness and I just go with it and I try to explain in my personal way why these composers are so amazing. Yeah, no, and I think you do a really good job of that. I love the introduction, by the way. I think you bring up that topic of greatness and how you're trying to subvert it in this book. And you also kind of raise the, you know, the, the arbitrary nature of lists like this and that they are deeply personal, no matter how objective people can make it look on an online forum, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And they're fun. But to me, even back in 2011 with the top 10 project, I, I kept trying to say during it that the point is to get people thinking and talking about why if you were really pressed to pick this composer over that composer, why would you pick one over the other yeah. on the basis of what? Like, yeah. can you be precise about that? Can I be precise about it? So that's what I, I've tried to do. Yeah, uh, that, that's so good. And I, I love one of the quotes that you include in there talking about experiencing a piece. And it's, um, if I'll read it for our listeners, is uh, to make these pronouncements in the flush of enthusiasm is a shorthand way of affirming the work's mastery. Yes, but even more, it's hold over us. So again, this is such an important component of our relationship to music, not the subjective greatness, but this idea of how it makes us feel over a short period of time and even a prolonged period of time. It's when you go to a great movie that you walk out of and you think, oh, that's great. That movie's amazing. It's just, and that's all true. But in that moment, you are feeling that, but you're not making a sober assessment of where it's going to fit in the history of cinema, what place it's going to occupy. In a way, that doesn't matter. That's not on your mind. You know, I feel the same thing. When I listen, the, the thing I love about contemporary music, music by living composers, is that in, in a way it invites me to not think about lasting greatness, to not think about legacy, you know, just, just to in the moment get excited or baffled or confused or maybe annoyed or whatever my reaction is, but to get swept up in it in the present, you know, and go with it and feel, ah, history will take care of all that. You know, someday they'll sort out all this. <laughs> and But we don't have to think about that right now. I think that a lot of people have that experience in all the arts with all, with all kinds of things that in the moment just knock them out. No, I, I agree. And I think a lot of those greatness narratives can really take away from the actual pieces. Like you write in the book about um, the weirdness of, of Beethoven's third and how people in the time didn't know what to do with it. And I, I just saw Mahler's uh, ninth with the LPO last night, and it's right. such a weird symphony, such a weird piece of work. And when you have these like narratives, either personal or like gratifying, you lose that aspect of it. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, especially when you get to a, a figure like Beethoven, those symphonies are so familiar, so iconic that we forget how wild and crazy they were, you know, that in the time you can read, I quote in my book, in the chapter on Beethoven, you can read a, a, a British critic, like almost 20 years after the premiere of the Seventh Symphony, writing about there's no coherence in it. <laughs> so that perception, Beethoven, I try to get at that he was an amazing figure. He had incredible stature and there, a lot of pieces really got 
got to people, but he was baffling too. There was a sense in which they thought, this guy is great. I'm not sure exactly how, but he's really great. <laughs> it was a little baffling, you know, the music. And it, today I like performances of it that still make it seem a little baffling, you know, that emphasize how wild it is. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. And that kind of raises another point that you bring up about the overall state of classical music and how people perceive it. And you quote um, Alex Ross, who is the critic from The New Yorker, um, talking about that term classical music. And you say, you know, that makes the whole field seem dead and it traps a tenaciously living art in a theme park of the past, which I, I love that quote. And I'm wondering your thoughts on the actual state of orchestral music, uh, what you call it yourself, and, and do you feel this perception is changing? Yeah, these terms are not wonderful, and the classical music especially. And, you know, as they start seeping into other fields, what's classic rock? <laughs> you know, like, you'll get a lot of rock fans arguing about, about that. But classical music, we're stuck with it. I mean, it's like all these terms, like Philip Glass doesn't like minimalism. Duke Ellington didn't like jazz. And, you know, uh, I, I knew a scholar once who said, tough. That's tough. Because those of us who have to write about it find those terms pretty helpful because at least it indicates to people what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. but, but they're not great. But both allure and challenge of classical music right now is um, that it does, in a time when our intention spans seem to be shorter and shorter and we're all on our phones all the time and interactive, classical music happens over spans of time. Even a 20-minute Haydn string quartet is a, is a commitment. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it only makes sense when you listen to the whole piece, you know, as an entity. And it, it demands that you give yourself over to it. But in a way, classical music should be selling itself as a place to turn out off everything, turn, to turn out everything, forget everything, to, and just sit there and give yourself over, you know, for this period of time to a composer and performers and let them organize that space for you and listen. But if you have a feeling for, for that kind of architecture and music, you know, that, and the emotional uh, narrative that class, classical music can take you on. There's nothing like it. The one thing I'd say to anybody interested in getting getting into it, this is still an art form that's dominated by natural acoustics, traditional instruments. I mean, if, yes, there are lots of electronic instruments in classical music, especially contemporary classical music, but still most classical music is written for unamplified situations with natural instruments and natural acoustics, and you have to hear it live. The sound of an orchestra in a concert hall, the sound of an opera, of opera singers. When I was a kid, I, I came from a very unmusical family, and I'd, I'd go to the Met and be up in the stratosphere, and I didn't even know what the operas were about. But the sounds of those voices that I heard, you know, Nielsen and Lean Price and even Renata Tibaldi toward the end of her career, and I couldn't believe it. You know, the it just hooked me. And the orchestra, the way it would was kind of soar up and swirl around me, and um, you have to hear it live. Yeah, and I, I agree. It's really such an interesting experience and a real treat, and I don't think people realize that. They expect it to be, you go, you cross your legs, you have a glass of cognac, and you sit in utter silence, but 
It can be a meditative space. It can be, it can feel like a rock concert at, at points. I've seen people, you know, watching things and like bobbing their head and shoulders along with it, which is such a, a treat to see. No, that is a treat to, to, to see. And it, it, the, the classical music has to really loosen up the protocols and let, I mean, I think that is happening. People will dress in any way they want to and do anything they want. And the bobbing and moving, that's okay. There is a thing, though, where you do need people to be attention, attentive. If yeah. it starts getting to the point where people are singing along or, <laughs> you know, then, uh, you know, then you're not, then that doesn't work in, you know, in classical, in classical music settings, at least indoor, you know, uh, concerts and halls and opera houses and stuff. But yeah, it's, I, I'd say that if, if you, if that hooks you, that idea, if that experience of, you know, I've taken real newcomers, younger people, to things where they get it immediately. They get into the idea of being a little meditative, as you put it, mm-hmm. just giving yourself over, you know, like, if you get that, then you're all set. Then you're probably a classical music fan in waiting. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And again, like like you said, seeing it live, there are great recordings out there, and I, I enjoy listening to recordings of all types. But feeling like the power of a hundred people playing their own instruments or are singing is just—you can't get that fully realized on a disc or on a a wave file. No, my my apartment is full of recordings that I cherish and are very important to me, and I completely agree. But when you get into classical music and hear all this stuff live, the recordings, you get to the point where you supply listening to a recording, what's missing, missing, especially an old recording, like Arthur Schnabel playing Beethoven sonatas from the 1930s. Um, uh, you get the idea, you sure do, but you, you can supply with your ear and your inner ear and your imagination what's missing, you know, yeah. what will be, um, you know, uh, yeah, but it's, of course, record, we're, they're wonderful, and we have access to so much music. It's just uh, unprecedented, uh, but it's not like the real thing. Wow. Yeah, um, to kind of to pivot a little bit, I'm interested in, in the writing of this book and going over these composers once again, or in, even in the original list. Um, what's a, a figure that you included here that your relationship with their music kind of grew in a way you didn't expect? Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, I have more composers... I mean, I have 17 composers who are actually, I really deal with in kind of chapters, but I'm constantly making side trips to, when I talk about Chopin, I also talk about Liszt for a while. When I talk about Schumann, I talk about Clara Schumann and, and, and 20th century composers that I mention and go into, but, you know, without having whole chapters on them. So there, I had more slots in a way available to me, but it, it was in thinking that, okay, I can't just write some chapter that is the equivalent of a music dictionary article. You know, it has to be personal. It has to be me. And I've got to come up with something, you know, really come up with something to say. And the composer that a a couple of composers really, as well as I knew them, sitting down to do this made me think, okay, what am I really going to come up with? Chopin was one, I think, that um, I always loved him. But I think he's another composer who maybe is hurt by his own popularity and we think oh chopin oh isn't it wonderful oh but there's there's a combination of 
craftsmanship and fine detail and this poetry, but along with this wild imagination, this fantastical, almost dangerous side to his music that I think gets lost uh, because it, because it's so familiar. Also, the other thing about him is that um, Beethoven was kind of invented the notion of the composer as colossus yeah. striding across our time writing these monumental symphonies and concertos and string quartets and and he kind of intimidated composer it took Brahms like 20 years to write his first symphony because how could you write a symphony after Beethoven <laughs> and the whole generation that followed Beethoven felt that Schumann for example who had a, an imagination as wild as Chopin's felt, oh my gosh, I have to write symphonies and sonatas and oratorios. Too. I have to do that too, because you know, Be- that's, he was in awe of Beethoven. Chopin cared nothing about Beethoven. That, ho- it, that whole structural thing, that whole massive stro- just didn't interest him. He was more improvisatory you know, in his, his approach. He was under pressure to write the great Polish opera. He resisted. He never wrote a symphony or wanted to. He just wanted to write his piano pieces as fast as he could write them down and then rework them and rework them to get them the way, the way he wanted them. And he did, wasn't even particularly interested in the music of his time by other composers. He was respectful, but he, he was sort of lost in himself. Although he loved old music, he loved Bach and Mozart, he loved Italian opera, Bellini. Um, and that comes through, you know, in his melodic writing. But that really fascinated me about him. And I think I developed my ideas a lot more in writing that chapter. Interesting. Is there a specific piece of his that really kind of affected you that you weren't suspecting would? Well, I... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's where it gets personal. I mean, I, I recount the struggles I had. I remember I talk about this a recital I gave senior year at Yale. Mm. And I played a Haydn sonata and I, a hard one. And then I played my first late Beethoven sonata from his late period, the Opus 110 in A-flat, which was mystical and cosmic and challenging. My first Schoenberg, Arnold Schoenberg piece, the first piece that has a 12-tone piece in it, the five pieces. And that took me a year to learn that. That was so hard for me. Wow. Then I ended with a Chopin Nocturne on the first ballade. And the first ballade was, is technically hard, but it was more, even more than technically hard. It was emotionally hard. Mm. It, was, it exposes you. It's so on the surface. It's so raw. Also, at the time, as I say in the book, I was dealing with being gay, and um, it, and it was... In a way, as I say in the book, Chopin allowed me no secrets when I played that ballad. Yeah. Um, that's what made it hard. Not, not the technical challenges, you know, which were hard enough. But, um, and I, I, thinking back to it, as I wrote that chapter, I realized, wow, that that's really was a turning point you know, for me in a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, but it, it's... It's another piece that we sort of take for granted, but it's a colossal and yet totally impetuous and rhapsodic piece. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, and thank you for sharing that. I, I keep thinking about you both as a performer, a teacher, and now as a, as a critic, um, listening and listening over your career and experiencing these things. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to know is how how have your tastes changed? How have your perceptions of the music changed? What do you find yourself kind of 
looking forward to more or leaning into more? I, I think my, it's funny, my book goes into the 20th century, like through the death of Stravinsky, and I talk about being at Yale in the 70s, and, but the last sort of 50 years, I don't really deal with much, yeah. because I feel like that whole lasting greatness thing, we're just too close to this music to know. In a way, it feels like a different book to do that. Yeah. But nothing is more important to me or interests me more than new music and music by living composers and recent music. That's what I'm always most curious about, even if I wind up being disappointed. And that's the most important thing I do in my job at, by far is bring attention to new music because that's why I'm really needed. The Metropolitan Opera right now has the magnificent performance that they're doing of an opera I adore, Pelias at Melisande of mm-hmm. Debussy. And the, the conductor, Yannick Nezes-Sagan, is fantastic, a good cast. So it's very, very important to report on that. It's, it's a great performance of a great work. But we do know it. It's not Next week, the New York Philharmonic is playing a big, ambitious premiere of, of a multimedia piece by the composer Julia Wolfe. Mm. And that is more important. <laughs> that that That's where I feel like, well, I have a job to do. I have to go report on this piece you yeah. know, and, and grapple with it and describe it. And so that's always what interests me the most. It's also, in a way, the easiest to write about because nobody's written about it before. Yeah. You know, when I review even a good performance of the Eroica Symphony of Beethoven or something, mm-hmm. what can you say? I can say, well... We all know it. We all love it. It happened again. And uh, it's, um, you're, you're sort of pressed, but this, no one's written about it before. So it's, it's all fresh for me, you know, to take on. Yeah. The other thing, it's all, almost in the opposite extreme. I find myself more interested in older music, Baroque music, Renaissance music, but especially Baroque music and Baroque opera and Baroque oratorio, more than I realized I would be, I think, at this stage in, in, um, in my life, in my career, uh, because we're more and more performances of things that we don't know are being done uh, from, from that era. And that, that's also fascinating. Yeah, no, I get that. I think that, that, that's a good answer to that question. That's really exciting. You get to be on the cutting edge of these things, and maybe people will be reading about your thoughts on these premieres, right? Yes, and if if um, there's a wonderful book that every critic should have, edited by Nicholas Slominski, called Lexicon of Musical Invective, mm. and it's a collection of critical critics' pans of the great masterpieces in history, <laughs> you know, like at the time. And every critic should read that and realize that... Uh, Boy, but it doesn't. The moral of that book is not that if I don't like something, it's not that I shouldn't say so. I should say so. It's just that I, I, the, I try, I try to hard, you know, to be open-minded to anything new. And if I don't like it, you know, I'll say, well, I don't know. This confused me. This baffled me. And now a piece can baffle you in a good way, in a neat way, like yeah. any work of art can. But sometimes it's not interestingly baffling. It's just baffling. <laughs> and uh, 
so I'll say that, but I try to say, well, I don't know, this way it sounded, what I, this is what I got out of it. Um, I try not to be this know-it-all I just, I immediately since it's new to me. Yeah. Um, but if I'm wrong about something, so be it. You know, like I, I just, uh, that's okay. At least it's fresh and I'm responding, you yeah. know, personally and with, that, with all the knowledge I can bring to it. It's true. And, you know, again, like going back to the, your introduction, if it affects some other person in a deeply, a deep way, you know, who are you to say that it's a bad thing, right? Absolutely. And I, I it's funny when I, I understand that a cri- any critic, but certainly the chief critic at the Times, I, I understand I, I have a platform that's provided by the Times and I take it very responsibly and I, I, un- I understand that, that my words can matter, but I can't let that inhibit me either. I still yeah. have to be me. So I hope if, uh, that my reviews are respectful and uh, knowledgeable. But finally, what I also hope comes through is that I'm saying, hey, this is just what I thought. You know, <laughs> I was there last night. This is what I thought. If I heard it again, maybe I'd feel differently. If I thought about it a week, maybe I'd feel differently. But... If you want to know my immediate reaction, here it is. Yeah, and that, that's good. And people got to take those constraints uh, along with it because you, you have a deadline. You have to write something. You can't Absolutely. give it all the time. You have a deadline. And, and in a way, I like that about journalism, that in, in a way it forces you not only as a writer to figure out what you're going to say, but it forces you intellectually to say not over – state what you're doing. Hey, this is my first reaction. You know, here's my immediate reaction. It's just as in hard news that stories come out, they're written, then we find out more, they're rewritten, then we find out more, and they're, you know, revised, and we, we, the the picture gets filled out. That happens in music too. Um, A new piece comes back and you realize, well, now I hear, now I hear it differently. Now I hear more in it. You know, um, oh, that's interesting. No, I agree. Um, I know we are a little over on time, but I do have a couple of questions if you have a little time. One, I know uh, this may be opening a big can of worms, but who are a few modern composers that you get really excited for and that you really love seeing their work live? Yeah, there are, there's some younger Americans right now, two young men whose work I like a lot, Andrew Norman and Matthew O'Coin, who wrote this wonderful opera called Crossing about Walt Whitman's working as a nurse during the Civil War to wounded wounded soldiers is remarkable, very audacious music and terrific work. I was just the other day at the Met when I went to Peleas, I was sitting behind Kaya Sariajo, the Finnish composer. She's lived in France, though, for she at least 30, 30 years now, if not longer. And I love her music. She did an opera that I heard the premiere of in 2000 at the Salzburg Festival called A Love from Afar in English. That's just incredibly mystical love story and from the Middle Ages. And uh, I, I think she's remarkable composer. And gosh, you know, there are you know, a, lot, a lot of really ter- uh, terrific music being written right now, I'd say. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you, you write about it on a weekly basis and even more so. So I'm sure your, your head is like swimming with who did I not talk about yet. Right. Um, well, to kind of wrap us up, uh, Tony, uh, I'm wondering what you're reading right now and also if you're working on anything special for 2019. Well, uh, there's no book 
a, a horizon right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, this one just came out, yes. so I need a breather before, <laughs> I hope uh, so. I hope before so. I think about another one. But um, as far as, I mean, since I got so immersed in my book and music, I've been reading fiction lately, mostly. Mm. And the, I know I'm not positive how to pronounce the name of the phenomenal Irish author, Colm Toibin, and... Um, his late novel, Nora Webster, I just finished last night, and I just think it's amazing. Hmm. He's the guy who wrote Brooklyn, the novel that was made into a wonderful film. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and then I just picked up a nonfiction book, which is Susan Orlean, Orlean's book on the library book about the, what libraries sort of mean to us, sort of focused on the uh, Los Angeles library. But... Um, that I met her and we, we shared a book gig. Oh, cool! Uh, and um, I'm very anxious to read that now too. But I've been reading a lot of fiction. <laughs> that's good. I'm sure you need a break from from yeah. fiction. Um, well, that's fantastic, Tony. Um, I wanted to thank you again for for joining us. I appreciate the conversation and I really appreciate this book. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. It was, it was my pleasure. <laughs>